perfection is very difficult and probably impossible to achieve. So let's go for not necessarily perfect, but let's go for amazing, right? And what that assumes underneath it is that we are putting in the work. We are going to put in the grind, the effort, the passion and the energy to be better than what we were before, to elevate ourselves and to set ourselves at a really high bar so that by bettering ourselves, we actually exceed others. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Mar, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing? I am good. I am really good. I'm excited for this. I like to start these things off. It sounds like you've listened to a few of the episodes, so you know the deal. I want to read your background back to you, and please fill in any blanks. Deal? Sounds great. Okay. You got your degree from Cal State San Francisco in international business and honors. Then you went to do business development at a law firm, Arthur and Anderson, for three and a half years. You then went on to AT&T and were a sales executive there. Then you spent about a year as an AE for One Media Place, which was acquired one year after you left by Media Passage. Then you went on to be a sales director at Message Media for a year and a half, which was then acquired by DoubleClick while you were there. You then went on to Experian, where you were a senior sales director for four years, a senior director of West and Central Region for five and a half years, then the VP of Strategic Accounts for four years, then the senior VP and head of sales ostensibly for just over two years. That was all at Experian, correct? Correct. And then I think equally as notable, you were also the founding member, senior executive sponsor, steering committee for the Leadership Connections Women's Group at Experian Marketing. And you did that for... It looks like at least three years of your tenure there. And that's something that I absolutely want to talk about. Then you went to Sitecore. You became the vice president for the Americas and head of enterprise sales at Sitecore. You did that for almost three years. And now, as of seven months ago, you are at Apps Flyer as the SVP and head of sales. You got it. Wow. You went to the way, way back machine. <laughs> the way, way back. Some guests, some guests are like, oh man, I didn't like that. You made me feel, that was a long history right? over a right? lot of years. We feel old. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Did wow. I miss anything? I don't think you missed anything. It's literally since AT&T, you've been in online media and advertisement. Is that right? Got it. Yes. Digital marketing, as they used to say, marketing technology, as we now say. Yeah. And so... Look, there's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about in sitting in bed, doing some research last night. I came across your Twitter. I came across some of your background. And there's some things that I absolutely want to dive into you and what makes you you. And I think what makes you a phenomenal leader. And one of those things is what's, what's it like to be a woman in sales? Another is talking about building a comprehensive go-to-market strategy, what that means. Before I dive in, so you're at Message Media for a year and a half. And then DoubleClick acquired them while you were there. And then ultimately, at some point, how long after 
did Google end up buying DoubleClick for three and a half billion? Yeah, clearly I missed that boat. <laughs> Thank you, Jubin. I didn't mean to open. I didn't mean to open uh, old scabs. Actually, what's interesting is that what Google bought was the ad serving technology, right? The ad tech piece of DoubleClick, and where I sat was in the email marketing platforms business. So I wouldn't have been part of the acquisition anyway, but I think it was, gosh, I want to say at minimum three to five years, that time horizon. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess I don't have the privilege of having a, too many people that are experts in ad tech like you. And I say experts in the sense that you've literally been doing this your entire career. At some point, did you ever think, you know what, maybe I want to do something different? Or was it kind of just this flywheel of the more you got into it, the more relationships you built, the more your network kind of grew within this thing? Or is there something inside of you that you're just super passionate about this space and field? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think the flywheel effect comes into play when you realize you're really passionate about something and you're really good at it, that combination of capability and passion. And yes, I felt like I was in really good company in terms of both the space and the ecosystem and the marketers that I was doing business with, as well as the organizations that I became a part of. There were probably, you know, moments in my career where I said, can I look at something else? And I think admittedly, there certainly were options that came around that were completely a lift and shift away, right? Can we transfer selling skills and sales leadership skills to other industries? Absolutely, 100%. And had I thought about that? Sure. And we can get into it, right? But my journey from point solution, marketing, SaaS products, to more marketing cloud, enterprise-grade software, to now clearly very much in mobile and mobile measurement and analytics, I think has evolved as consumer behavior and marketing strategies and sort of marketing technology has evolved, right? So yep. in a way, I'm kind of following the trend with, with respect to the technology that I choose to sell. Yeah, well, speaking of trend, it seems like you followed a good one coming to Apps Flyer. All the, I put in quotes, mainstream Silicon Valley investors missed it. And I say missed it because most recently in about January, February, even maybe even more recently, Apps Flyer announced a Series D funding, $210 million valuing the company at $1.6 billion. I think General Atlantic did that round. Since the previous round, Apps Flyer had grown its team 4x to 850 employees throughout 18 global offices. It's one of the fastest growing SaaS businesses around and has seen 5x growth in ARR, exceeding $150 million in 2019. This follows a five-year growth in ARR from 1 million to 100 million. So I guess besides the obvious of you look at that and it's clearly there's something special in the water, what was your decision-making process like to leave Sitecore and come there? Amazing, amazing story, right? Really, really great story. I mean, the apps flyer story. And if you double click on that, and we can get to this in a little bit, they had a little bit of an atypical start, right? It's an Israel-based company, really looked at sort of where the hot markets were that had affinities with mobile. And I think that those bets were tremendously successful for them. And we can talk about that. But in terms of why other than the obvious, like why come to Asflyer, I think closer to 
my own sort of set of criteria or needs from a career perspective, I think I alluded to this, I had done sort of the tour around marketing technology players from point solutions to enterprise software. And where I always had spent my time was in systems of execution, right? If you think about marketing technology, you can sort of articulate them in sort of different buckets of systems. There's systems of data that manage consumer data and customer data. Those are the CDPs of the world, the common, you know, what we commonly call customer data platforms. Then there are systems of execution, right? The marketing clouds of the world, the Salesforce and the Adobe's and the Oracle marketing clouds of the world that exist today. And then there are systems of analysis and measurement. And this is really where AppSpire sits as an attribution company. And I had never spent time there. So holistically and strategically for sort of my domain expertise, I thought it was complementary to where I had spent a lot of time in my career. So that's one. The second point too, and probably more importantly, is sort of what they needed from a sales leader, right? So going back to how AppSplier was founded and its strategy of really starting from Europe and Asia and really leveraging the growth in mobile there, what happened was North America became sort of the younger sister or younger sibling of those other regions. So if you think about it, AppSplier has been in the market for 10-ish years but the North America business has only been in market for about half of that time. So life cycle wise, it's in an interesting pivotal point in terms of the growth it needed. And it needed a leader now from a selling perspective who can bring in the infrastructure and the structure and the process, the system to really accelerate revenue attainment and sales success. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Can you give us an example or a use case of how a company or a customer of AppSpire, why do they use you and what is it specifically? Yeah, there's a couple things. So I'll just take a digitally native customer call, right? That's a great mm -hmm. app. So if you think about where the AppSpire value really starts, it's with the idea that you have to drive consumer installs of your app, right? And there are what we would call app native companies that are just born in the mobile space, creating an app, developing an app, and then really driving all of their user base off of that app. Somebody needs to measure that, right? Whether you're promoting advertising to drive the install of the app, so you need to have that insight, and then also trying to measure the activity of those users as they engage with the app, that level of measurement and analytics is what we capture. And that's really, really important, even for more enterprise customers that have other marketing channels, because what they can do is they can extract that data, put it into their other systems of data, and create this sort of holistic view of the customer so that they can engage and drive better experiences in all of those other channels. Yep. Thank you for that background. That's super helpful. And Jumping back to your experience, because I want to ask you something before I dive way into things and I forget, you weren't always a sales leader. In fact, at some point you were experienced salesperson of the year. If you look at your LinkedIn recommendations, it's many flattering things about you as a sales leader. There's also many flattering things about you as a salesperson, helping your customers drive the value that they need. 
My specific question is, as a salesperson of the year, you're making great money. You have all the accolades that you want. You have no one breathing down your neck. It's really just one of the best jobs you could have. And you're comfortable and you have flexibility. Why the hell would you think to yourself, you know what? Now is time for me to go into leadership. What was that decision-making process like for you? Mm -hmm. It was really easy. So a couple things. I think sales was really my calling to begin with. I was incredibly natural at it. And when I describe sales to people who are not familiar with it, I usually say it's sort of an art and a science. And I know that in a previous podcast, you guys talked about, you know, I think it was with Carlos, you know, the science of sales. But in my mind, sales is first an art. And I was really, really, really good at the art. It became very natural for me to engage with people, to really talk about their business. I was curious about my customers. And I think that's the first really great tell of a wonderful seller is somebody who understands how to listen, to extract information and to be naturally curious and not just needing sort of a platform to spew out <laughs> their own knowledge, right? It's not, you have to be somewhat non-self-serving to be really good at sales. So it came natural to me. And then up to the point where I was given this wonderful accolade, the salesperson of the year awarded experience means you are the top sales professional in a seat of 800 people in a $5 billion organization. So that was quite an accolade. And I remember, this is going to get to your question. I remember my president at the time coming to me going, wow, Mar, this is your sports illustrated cover. <laughs> so you know what this means. This means you've got to go a completely whole nother level now, or this is the end for you. <laughs> this is the end. And then a year later, I was promoted. So that awakening around what do I do next? It just came really, really natural. It just became sort of the natural progression of what I wanted to do with my career. And I think when you have high achieving, highly ambitious people, you seek that next level, you know, maybe sometimes before you're even ready. And I just knew that I had done what I think most people had accomplished in sales and what I wanted to do in sales. I ticked off all the boxes. And so I needed a new challenge. And that's yeah. when I raised my hand for a leadership yeah. role. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing. I think I make it seem like this really hard decision at the time. Like it is a very natural thing. Like that's happened to me before as well. Last startup I was at, my first full quarter ended up having great success and doubling the logo count of the company and hit my quota. So I had three quarters of accelerators and my boss came to me and he said, you know, what do you want to do? You have an opportunity to really make some money or you could basically be the poster boy to go build this team, right? You can talk about your success and then we can plant that success flag in the ground and talk about, it's such a great recruiting angle. And it was so obvious for me, of course, that's the next challenge for me. That's exactly what I want to do. And it was barely a decision. It was just very natural. Okay, this is exactly what I want to do. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Okay. So in June of 2020, Apple made an announcement that they're updating their iOS 14 platform, which is changing their IDFA rules where they basically get rid of Apple attribution. And so I'm probably butchering this because this is obviously not my world, but IDFA is identification for advertisers, if I'm not mistaken. 
And basically, not to oversimplify it, but this is a very, very key part of the way that Apps Flyer leverages the Apple technology in order to provide attribution for your customers. Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. So if you're a customer, you would say, well, golly, it's going to be harder to advertise if we don't believe that you can effectively measure the results of our ads. And so there's a big uproar in the industry or whatever. People are just trying to figure out what does this mean and what's next. And to quantify the problem, there's actually two times the amount of Android users in the market, but iOS spend is 2x as much. And so if you start to dilute the spend on iOS, it becomes a real predicament. You guys, when you read articles, Apps Flyer is quoted as having a lot of the statistics and you're clearly the central player in a lot of the things around IDFA. And so I would love to hear your perspective on how does the business think about it? How do you think about it? And how do you respond? And, you know, what's next? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at what Apple is doing, it's very clear. It is about consumer privacy. And this is a, an age old theme that you see with any sort of marketing technology. It is all about protecting the consumer and it's ever more the number one agenda in many of the big players in the marketing tech space and in the tech space generally, right? But I'm, my lens is very specifically to marketing. And look, we agree. We absolutely agree. And privacy has been one of our key strategic pillars at AppsFlyer in terms of where we see our business and what our responsibility is to the ecosystem. So we wholeheartedly support Apple's decision. I think the appropriate response, and while I will share this with you, I think it's important to note that this topic is very, very fluid. But our position is this, attribution will continue to be a you know mission critical component of any marketer, after IDFA. And it is because there are things that we will support to continue to provide attribution for our mobile marketers and advertisers. So there is such a thing called SK Ad Network, which is Apple's own version of attribution, which has a development path that it needs to be on. It doesn't answer everything for the mobile advertiser. We also have our proprietary and native aggregate attribution capabilities, as well as other capabilities like web to app that will allow us to basically augment what Apple has natively by way of SK ad network to continue to provide the same level of measurement for advertisers. So we're not concerned. The other thing I would say is that the answer, whatever it is and whatever it becomes and however fluid it will continue to be, is really going to come from those who have both the wherewithal financially, resource-wise, and in terms of relationships in the ecosystem, and we think we're really well positioned to be that player in our space. And so how does this work in practice? If I'm a consumer, just so that stupid Jubin here can understand what this actually means for me. So I open an app, and when I open a new app, it would say, I guess, with this new update, and I, I understand Apple's perspective, and I think it's pretty tough to argue with right now, which is, okay, our users want privacy. And what that means is that the applications that we put on our phone, we're accountable for ensuring some form of privacy within those applications. And so really there's, what, assumptively an opt-in of, would you like this app to track all of your data across all of your browsing sites? And when you put it like that, I think everyone's gonna just, 
ostensibly say no. But I do think, on the other hand, if it was phrased differently or if the consumer actually understood why, some people, as an example, like if you go on websites, I think Facebook said this, that people preferred ads on Facebook. They had a better user experience. And when they got rid of ads, the consumer was upset because they like targeted ads that are actually relevant to them. And so I do think that there is something to be said for well-done attribution that can actually help the consumer put relevant things within their ecosystem or line of sight, if you will. So Chubin opening his phone on a new app, is that the quandary that you guys are looking to solve between you and app? You got it. So let's say you go to the app store and you want to download an app, right? Essentially today, what you can do is you download that app and then you can use the app immediately. Once you download it, there will be a pop-up inside or the app will actually be forced to create a pop-up before you download it that asks for your consent for that identifier, the IDFA, to be shared. And so it's exactly what you just said. It's a little bit of an alarming language. So if you're not used to sort of the concept of, hey, your activity on your phone actually has an identifier that allows people to understand what you're doing. So that's a little bit of a wake-up call for those of us who are maybe not you know, sort of aware of that from a technology perspective. But I think that's the alarming piece to the consumer. But putting that aside for a second and putting attribution aside for a second, you are 100% correct around that user experience. The connection that we may or may not make, and this is my words, not necessarily AppSpires, is that if you said no to that, theoretically, you're saying, change my user experience. Mm. And I spent time on Instagram have I purchased off of an ad from Instagram? Absolutely. God, I'm smiling the amount of times right? I've done that recently. And that's exactly right, because our eyeballs are on every app and on our mobile phones 100% of the time, <laughs> conceptually. And that's where we transact. And the user experience and the expectation of today's consumer is that is a frictionless purchase. E-commerce or mobile commerce more specifically is frictionless. So I think that will be the debate. Absolutely. It is. It's very fascinating. I bought a pack of three white t-shirts last night for $30. And I think over the last four weeks, I've bought, I don't know, like three or four different types of masks to see which ones are the most comfortable. Oh, and I'm, man. That's the, good. The mask purchases. I mean, Jonah <laughs> Love is my favorite mask app, my favorite app on Instagram right now for the fact that I can buy five masks at a time in two clicks. And we did a fun little gag gift for one of our sales ops guys in my last company where we ordered and put his face on a bunch of Divvy Up socks and everyone showed up at our kickoff with custom Divvy Up socks, all 100% made through, <laughs> you know, an Instagram downloaded ad. So, hey. That is awesome. And with some of the stuff, obviously, while unfortunate going on in the macro environment, specifically what that means for mobile is that people are on their phones a lot. And so, in fact, ad spending, I think some of the numbers that I saw has gone up like 40, 50% through these last nine months to a year. You see it with all these gaming companies. People are stuck at home. But, you know, in the meantime, we're stuck on our phone. And so this advertising spending has started to go through the roof. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're also seeing it more and more in traditional brands, right? We're talking to a lot of multi-channel retailers who are really pivoting a lot of their marketing and ad budgets to digital. They're chasing their consumers. 
The consumers yep. are on digital and on mobile more specifically, and they need to elevate the experience of that consumer on that channel and on that device. 100%. Okay. I was going through your background, some of the obvious things for me. One of my buddies, he always says, don't talk about it, be about it. And you're about it. And what I mean by that is that you have multiple points on your resume around building women leadership groups, women's groups, and opportunities for women to basically be empowered within the workplace and in organizations that you've worked at. You did that at Experian. Before I really dive into it, so you ran the women's group at Sitecore. You started the women's group at Experian. I'll just leave this open-ended, but I think it's so awesome. Why do you do it? And what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's a couple of things. So first of all, I absolutely recognize this topic is very trendy. And optically, it feels sort of very today, very, you know, there's a lot of people hopping on this bandwagon. But I think as I reflect on this topic, it really is born out of personal experience. And I would say there's two critical components to why I thought it was important. One is the whole notion of scarcity. There's a concept called the only, which was established in the late 70s by a couple of psychologists who I can't name at the moment, but McKinsey, even as recently as a couple of years ago, in their study of women at work, cited that 20% of women in the professional world are an only. And it gets even worse as you move up into the ranks, up to 40% if you're in an executive position or a technical position. And I've lived that state. I have been an only <laughs> multiple times. And what does that mean, an only? You're the only woman in the room. You're the only woman in the team. And I think more specific to this dialogue, the only woman in any of the dynamics. And I would say that at this point in my career, I don't see that as necessarily difficult. But I think what I took away from that experience is it would be wonderful to pay it forward to folks who don't necessarily recognize what impact that does to you and your career to be the only. And what the sort of backdrop in the context is. So that's one. The other piece is as a woman at work, especially in professional environments, and maybe I should say in any environment, ultimately you will run into bias, whether it's conscious or not. And again, I'm only speaking about gender dynamics. I'm not even talking about any other dynamics around bias, right? Not to make this topic bigger than what it is, but I'll give you an example, right? So in my early days as a leader, and I was pregnant with my first child, my then manager asked me, are you coming back? And my reaction to that was, well, that's a little old fashioned. <laughs> I mean, I'm not leaving. What, what what was he thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of pulled back and thought about that. And first of all, I assured him I was coming back. And by the way, not only did I come back, I took six weeks off. Mm. I mean, that's like half of FMLA. <laughs> half of what's, you know, legally warranted to you as an employee. But in any case, of course I'm coming back. But I think what that said to me was, he might be preparing for me to be less of a contributor. And I'm sure it was coming from a good place, but it clearly showed unconscious bias. Mm. 
And what validated that for me was that a year later, he promoted somebody in my organization who was my peer, but less experienced and with less performance proofs than me. Mm. And so when that happens to you, you say to yourself, it's a wake up call and you say, oh my gosh, I'm not going to let this happen to me again. And I'm certainly going to help other people on the way up who are aspiring to be in these positions so that they are enlightened and aware of it. So that's kind of the motivation around, hey, let's rally around women and let's support them. And let's also raise awareness to the unique experiences we have. And it wasn't, you know, let's put women in a bubble. Let's talk about it and include men and everyone in the conversation. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I come from a lineage of very, very strong women. And my mother is smiling right now, listening to this episode. In fact, I wanted to do something. Last night, again, in your Twitter, you talked about a book and then you referenced a video from a lady named Abby Wambach. And Abby... And I'm a soccer player, so I knew Abby. Nice. Abby is one of the most prolific women's soccer players to ever represent the United States. And she's one of the top, if not the top, goal scorer and all these things. And she gives a speech for a commencement at an all-women's school. And she has a book, I believe, that I know you mentioned that you recommend to all sorts of people. Yeah. So I listened to this speech last night. Of course, I immediately sent it to my mom after. I had goosebumps listening to this thing. And what was really cool about this speech is that it's not only about women and empowering women, but it's in the context of competition and of what it means to be in an environment that's competitive as a woman. And I think there are so many parallels to Again, being a white man, I don't really know, but just hearing you talk about it as a woman in the workplace that were incredible, I want to read a couple of these things to you that she said and use this as a framework to kind of attack this subject, if that's okay with you. Let's do it. Okay. So first of all, the whole, and maybe you'll do a better job than me, but the symbolism that she uses is Little Red Riding Hood. And she talks about being the wolf. And I'm going to go through this really quickly, so just spare me here. But basically... The fable of Little Red Riding Hood is that it tells Little Red Riding Hood, who is a woman, to go down a specific path. And this is the path, and do not steer off the path, because if you do, there will be a wolf. There's going to be a big bad thing that happens. There will be a negative consequence to steering off the beaten path, right? Lo and behold, she steers off the beaten path, and then there's the wolf. What Abby Wambach says is that women are the wolf. So... She put this story in the context of four general quotes in her experience being on the national team. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on these specific things and then maybe what that means to you and your experience in the workplace. The first is make failure your fuel. And by the way, these all resonated with me in some way, shape or form too. Like, I don't know if this is just necessarily for women. So non-athletes don't know what to do with the gift of failure. Failure is the high octane fuel life can run on. And she tells a story about when she got to meet her idol, she went into the locker room when she was a kid. And in the locker room, the women's national locker room, there's a picture. She thought what she would remember was their cleats or whatever. There's a picture of the Norwegian national team, who's the USA's biggest rival, celebrating after beating the US in the World Cup. That picture is standing there. And anyway, making failure your fuel. That's a reminder, that picture, every time. Oh, what do you think about that? I love it. 
first of all, her book is called Wolfpack. And that speech at Barnard was just, I'm totally with you. It gave me goosebumps. And then I played it again and pulled my boys in. I have two boys. I don't have girls. I'm not a mother of girls. But I am a mother of boys. And my opportunity there is endless in terms of putting the imprint of how they view women in their lifetime. So we watched it together. We listened to it together. I love it. It's just so inspiring, but it's very to the point, right? So we were always the wolf. And let failure be your fuel to me is really a statement around it's okay to fail. In fact, to be successful and to be really good at your craft, whatever that chosen craft is, you have to fail because failure means learning and getting better and getting up, dusting yourself off, learning from those mistakes and improving from them so that you can level yourself up and elevate your performance. I love it. I think while perhaps a sports analogy, it's very, very relevant to life in general, right? It's that growth mindset. How do you give your team permission to fail? Does it ever feel good? Do you ever feel like you can give a competitor the permission to fail? They're just going to be like, Mara, what are you talking about? I don't want to fail. And you say, no, well, it's okay. I know you're not trying to, but if you do, we'll get better. Yeah, absolutely. It happened a quarter ago, right? So one of my best sellers, one of my high potential employees came off of a huge deal, huge, massive. Not only could it have been massive for him and his year, but definitely a hallmark logo, if you will, for the business. And they essentially chose someone else. We misfired. We misfired. My immediate response was not to panic and certainly not to sort of wallow in that loss, but to tell him you're not going to win it all. You just won't. That's reality. But what can we learn from this? And you know what? He turned right around and he won the next major logo, the next even probably larger deal. And it's even more significant for Apps Flyer's history and future, the next deal that he won. So super cool. Number two, lead from the bench. So what she was talking about was that during her last World Cup, her coach came up to her and said, Abby, you're not starting. She's like top three to five greatest ever women's soccer players. Coach told her you're not starting in this World Cup. And she said it hurt. And basically her point was that if you're not a leader from your bench, don't call yourself a leader on the field. Either you're a leader everywhere or you're a leader nowhere. And she said something that was really cool. She said the fiercest leading that I've ever seen is between a mother and child. Parenting is no bench. It might just be the big game. It was really just like so cool. I thought about this one more and I thought, okay, there's been times where people have been promoted above me that I felt like weren't deserving. And I just thought that is really hard to do. And it really is a true testament to yourself as a leader and yourself as really a team player. So I don't know, any thoughts on that? Yeah, lots of thoughts, lots of thoughts. First of all, I agree parenting is the big game and you have to model the behavior for your children as well as your teams, right? That's sort of my belief. Leading from the bench is one of those things you can demonstrate that says you are a true leader. You do not have to be always up front. In sales, we talk about leading from the front, 
right? Modeling the behavior, taking it on, taking it with the team. But sometimes, and oftentimes, you're part of a very, very capable organization. At AppsFlyer, I have many peers that are equally as capable, if not more capable than me, depending on the domain and the subject matter expertise. It's okay. It's okay to be a supporting cast. It doesn't take anything away from you, your ability, and your credibility. It's actually really wonderful to be behind someone and to support them and to be the person that says, whatever you do, I got your back. I don't have to shine all the time. This is teamwork and it's very foundational definition. Team sports, right? Very, very important. There is no I in team. (laughs) We win together and frankly, we also lose together, but there is no sacred cow in a team. There shouldn't be. And I think Abby learned that the hard way because she was always in the front, the overperformer, the captain, right? All eyes on you. And it's really hard to say, I'm going to be on the bench. I'll go back to my example of when I said somebody got promoted when I felt like I was more deserving and more ready and more experienced. And it really took me a while to get over that. I think had that happened in my career today, I probably would have reacted differently. But it is those things that you learn when you say, you know what? Okay, so I'm not the one. But I am going to continue to be really great at what I do because I'm passionate about it. And frankly, I love it. And I will continue to perform, outperform myself and others and be vocal about what I want. And it will come. Number three, championing each other. So she says, when you score a goal, we're not necessarily celebrating the goal. She says, we're celebrating every sprint, every doubt every failure. And I think the point that she made is that there's a shared experience that happened. And that shared experience might be being a woman. That shared experience might be being on a team where you were doing all the windmill sprints. You felt all the pain together, but ultimately all boats rise with the tide and you can't do it unless you do it together. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly in that chapter, she talks about how when she scores, she points at other people. She points at her teammates. She points at the coaches. It's about them, not you. It's you, you, you. It's us together. It's celebrating each other. I think those are such great lessons in my work and in my work language. It's all about being grateful for the team around me. Because I wouldn't be as effective if it wasn't for that team. And it's not just my own team. It's the team that supports my team. It's the cross-functional leaders. It's my leaders. It's the people below. It's everyone, right? Sales is foundational to a company's success, but sales doesn't happen in a vacuum. So it is about pointing at others and recognizing their contribution and shining light that probably otherwise wouldn't get that recognition. And I'll just add to this because you can tell I'm really passionate about it. I appreciate that she says this, and this is one of the major sort of tenets of her philosophy, because oftentimes women are each other's worst enemy. 
And I've experienced this firsthand. And again, another contributing factor to why I thought it was really important to bring women together in an organized way. Because otherwise, in that scarcity, this is another theme that Abby talks about. When there's not a lot of space for you, women, you fight for that space. When, in fact, you should celebrate each other. And whoever gets that spot, whoever sits at the table, whoever gets the role, that's a win for all of you. Totally. And I love how passionate you are about it. And you don't just talk about it. You are about it. Okay. Last one. Demand the ball. So she shares a story and I'll go through the story quickly, but basically it was practice and her idol was playing with her and she was the best person on the team. And that person was kind of the team captain and said she was coaching the team on passing and doing all the things. And at some point it got to the point of the game or the second half where she realized as a leader that she needed the ball. And in order for her team to win, she had to demand the ball. Give me the ball. And Abby says, give me the job. She starts going off on demand it. It's yours. You've earned it. Any reaction to that? I think at this point in my career, demanding the ball is just natural. And again, I'll use stories about, hey, I'm a woman. Conscious or not, there's some bias around what I bring to the table, how capable I am. I don't look like the guy that you promoted. So it's about being vocal about what you want. It's about shining light on your abilities, your accomplishments. I think it was Sheryl Sandberg, maybe in Lean In, who, you know, obviously the seat at the table concept was one that came out of that book quite strongly, but it was also about advocating for yourself and knowing what you want and speaking up about it. Demand the ball. And that can take several forms. You know, for those of us who aren't quite used to this yet, that's about volunteering for the project. It's about vocalizing your desire to stretch yourself. It's about the adage of be the next role that you want to be promoted to. But it's also about saying and knowing I'm done with this current role and I'm ready for my next challenge and it may not exist here, but I'm going to go get it. So absolutely. Everybody should demand the ball. Thank you. I hope this is an okay framework to talk about it because it was really cool watching that video and eye opening, honestly. I want to wrap it there. I don't want to wrap it, but I have to wrap it here, unfortunately. I think you owe me a round two or maybe I owe you a round two or however it works. Oh, I would um, love that. Okay, awesome. In conclusion, I ask every guest the same questions. The first one, which is, I suppose, a two-part question, but what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Yeah. So when you think about grit and growth mindset, the obvious comes to mind around work ethic, putting in the time. But I, I would put it in this context, right? So I say something to my teams, and I said it recently, around perfection is very difficult and probably impossible to achieve. So let's go for not necessarily perfect, but let's go for amazing, right? And what that assumes underneath it is that we are putting in the work. We are going to put in the grind, the effort, the passion and the energy to be better than what we were before, to elevate ourselves and to set ourselves at a really high bar so that by bettering ourselves, we actually exceed others. But that's all about the work. It's all about the work. And grit to me is the grind, like put in the effort, 
put it in and look for continuous improvement in yourself and you will achieve that. And you may never, ever achieve perfection, but you can be pretty amazing. If someone wants to get a hold of you, AppsFlyer just raised a ton of money. Are you using it to hire people? Are those people in your organization? And if you are, how would someone get a hold of Mar? Yes, we are hiring and we are growing and we are calling ourselves Rocketeers. So come join the rocket ship. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I think that's probably the most obvious way. I'm also at Twitter at Marbrandt13. So yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Mar, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you, Juven. It was a pleasure. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.